Hello, and welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from, and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. I know that many of us come to church and we have the Bible on our app or we follow the scripture along on the screen today. I want to invite you to turn in your Bible of Ecclesiastes, but I know, hang on, before you do that, I'm going to make sure everybody's comfortable, because if I say to you Ecclesiastes, most of you know it's probably in the Old Testament, but you're a little bit nervous, and you don't want your neighbor to know that you're having a hard time finding it, okay? Let's just admit that together. Now, if you've got the Bible app, it's real easy, right? You pick it up, you throw it in there, you pick it out, but you'll find in your pew back and this will be important through the sermon, the RSV translation, which is the Revised Standard Version. So you can pull out that pew Bible if you like. What you do, the easiest way to find it, go back to Vacation Bible School, open your Bible up in the very middle. You're going to be somewhere around Psalms and Proverbs, and you turn to the right. It's in the wisdom literature. So if you ever need to find Ecclesiastes, you look to the middle in the wisdom literature. Stacy did a beautiful job last week of helping you understand how Proverbs is like the real attractive person with a thousand followers on Instagram, right? The quippy phrases that everybody loves, and the cute little pictures. It's sort of like Jesus in Pinterest. Everybody likes to follow Proverbs. Ecclesiastes is sort of deconstructing and pulling apart, and it can be, it can be incredibly confusion, confusing if we don't really lean into the basis of that. So as Jim reminded you, the key word is hevel in the Hebrew. It is, it is smoke. It's there, but when you try to grasp it, it's gone. Life is hevel, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, the preacher, the quelloeth, or the teacher, over 40 times, life is hevel. Or in the translation, this too is meaningless, but it's not really meaningless. Meaningless in our culture and language today is like obedience training for a cat. (laughs) That is meaningless, right? Or trying to baptize a cat, which is why you probably understand most cats are Methodist because it's easier to sprinkle them than to dunk them. So. (laughs) So when you see the word meaningless, it doesn't mean it's totally meaningless. It means it's futile, it's fleeting, it's here, but then it's gone, it's... It's a vapor. It's a mist. Or let me give you another analogy to help you understand that if we just jump into this text today without a context, it can be confusing. Let me offer you the name of Scott Cheers, who was driving back from UM Army in his pickup truck. And people would come by, and especially the women in the vehicles, as the vehicles would slow to pass him, the woman in the driver's uh, passenger seat would look over with scorn at him. Well, that wouldn't sound like just a terrible thing, would it? Gosh, people just mean to Scott Cheers. Here's in the spirit of Paul Harvey in the Quelloweth, the rest of the story. <laughs> you see, when you go to Yuma Army, you take your own vehicle, and on day one, Monday morning, you drive out through what's called the safety check, which is just a sort of meaningless, and I do mean that word, phrase for let your vehicle now be attacked by interns and other persons with window chalk. I still can't get the tic-tac-toe off my back window, and I still have remnants of window chalk all over my seam of my window. Don't let that deter you from actually volunteering. They put it in bright this and that. But on Friday, on Friday, you bring your vehicle back through, and they all joyfully will wash your vehicle for you. 
But in order for you to have your vehicle washed, you have to get out. And once you get out of your vehicle, if you happen to be the pastor who's attending, what you don't know is everybody has two water balloons. I was soaking wet. (laughs) My vehicle was roughly clear. Scott's was in a little bit of a hurry. His back window didn't quite fully get cleaned off, but they put at the very beginning of the week, to be funny, just married. Now, at the end of UM Army, it's a safety feature. You don't drive the kids who are with you back. It's a safety feature. And if you don't have a relief driver, you drive back alone, right? So it's just a safety feature. You don't want to put the kids at risk. Scott's coming back from Chandler, Texas. He's got all the things that his kids have packed for the whole week. And parents have sent dirty clothes. And so what he's got basically is about a dozen trash bags full of dirty clothes, some tools, what looks to be like a few suitcases in the back of a Tacoma coming down the road from Chandler back to Houston. And you can now understand the context of why the faded out words of just married drew the scorn of every woman in the passenger seat driving by who didn't know the rest of the story. And Scott Cheers will tell you, he could hear every one of them saying, that didn't take long. It's fleeting. It's there. It's gone. And folks, in our culture of disposable plates and disposable relationships and disposable commitments, we need to hear this word of the Quelloweth, the teacher, this penetrating word that challenges us in where we establish our values. Now, the big way of talking about this epistemological foundations. But the bottom line is, Where do you ground what you believe in? And why do you believe what you do? As our culture continues to drift away and become an absolute relative culture of subjective sort of indignation, it will be increasingly important for the church to hold both to its foundational truths and its graceful expression as such. And culture will do all it can to say, if you don't agree with me, you're just filled with hate. Okay, so this is going to be important for us to understand before we get into the big debates that are coming, especially in our denomination. Why do we believe what we do? And we come to the writer of Ecclesiastes because we believe Scripture, as God's breathed word, challenges some of our assumptions of how we see the world. And so we move into the 11th chapter, and we're leaning into the idea of wisdom. How do we define how we understand what it means to be wise? Look, I know this is almost like a riddle when you read it, and when you stand in a moment, it will, you'll, you'll wonder, how on earth are we going to make sense of these words? Well, stick around, stay awake. <laughs> Maybe at least one thing might become clear. So again, what you're going to see on the screen is the NIV translation. What you're going to see in your pew Bible is the RSV translation. And the important difference here is the RSV does a better job in the opening verses. So it's going to drive OCD people absolutely crazy. I'm going to read actually verses 1 and 2 out of the RSV, which I know you don't have it up there, you just follow along in the NIV, and then I'm going to jump to the NIV translation for verses 3 through 6. Out of respect to God's Word, 
Would you please stand and let us together now hear the Word of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1 through 6, the teacher, the Quelloeth, says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what evil may happen on earth. Verse 3 in the NIV translation, If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle. For you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, and as you are, let us pray together. May your spirit, O God, stand between me and your people so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together will be shaped, formed, and molded into the good news of the gospel of Christ, in whose name we have gathered, in whose name we pray, and in whose name we will seek to serve in ways that are distinctively representative of Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said... Amen. In 1972, a gentleman by the name of Studs Terkel, I don't know who names their kids Studs, but I'm, I feel like I missed out. I mean, what a heck of a name. Studs Terkel had a collection of conversations that he published in a book that is titled Working. That's it, Working. And it basically was the conversations and manuscripts that he had with people of all ranges of life in employment. It was about work in life. And what he says in the opening paragraph of this book is this, that this book, above all, is about daily humiliations. To survive the day is triumph enough for the walking wounded among the great many of us. Just to survive the day. Folks, this, this may sound a, a bit like a sad perspective, but this seems to be one thing that hasn't changed much in the last 50 years. And I dare say in the last 18 months, this sense of struggle may have been accelerated, but it's a surging of this understanding that for some folks, it's just getting through the day, which is the triumph. And so to understand our passage today, and any, any passage you pull out of Ecclesiastes, you really want to write this down or circle it in your Bible. Don't circle it in the Pew Bible because it may not be there for you next week. You can circle it in your Bible. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. We're going to leave this up on the screen inside the sanctuary for a moment so that you can see this. It says, Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing the wind. And so you may remember that each week we're sort of recasting and getting a little more clarity to what this means in the sense of the open-handed life. It comes from these verses. You see, 
the word hand or handfuls is the same word in the English, but there are three distinctive words that are used in the Hebrew for this. The first is fools fold their hands. This is yad in the Hebrew, yad. It is literally from the tips of your fingers to your elbow. It's as if they fold their hands and they just sort of give up, right? So when you're talking with someone, if they're not cold, if you're in a midst of conflict or someone disagrees with you, have you ever seen somebody just do this? This is kind of what it is life. They're just folding up their hands. They give up. And who do they ruin? The world around them? No, themselves. So in one sense is this part of the hand is just folded up. I'm checking it in. I'm mailing it in. The second one is is basically one handful with tranquility. This is kafuf in the Hebrew, kafuf. It's the inside of the palm. It's an open hand, but it's singular. Did you notice that? Better one handful. It's, it's a singular sense that this hand may be resting on one side, but there is at least a, a one hand open. And, and I would dare say you cannot hold as much with one hand as you can with two hands. Don't miss the significance of the writer in the Hebrew wisdom literature. Not only is it not folding both, not only are we going to talk about not clutching with both, but when it comes to tranquility, the sense of peacefulness in life, better it is to have an open hand and be at peace with one. Or as Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, I have learned to be content in all things. And then the third word that is used here, then two handfuls with toil and chasing after wind is hofen. It means fistfuls. So this whole series is built on this imagery that we've got some choices in life. In the midst of all the things you do know and don't know, you've got three basic choices. You can mail it in and say, that's it, I'm done. I'm done. You can say, hey, you know what? Life is what life is. God's with me. And I'll be content with just getting a handful. Or I'll say, I am going to get all I can get, and my life is going to be defined by clenched hands. And I'm going to chase after the wind. If you read on, it says, this too is chasing after the wind. This is havel. This is meaningless. It's vapor. So as we move into this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, another great imagery that may be helpful for us to understand specifically about how we look at life is the imagery of sandcastles. Sandcastles are something that you build on the beach, right? They, they require effort. Sometimes they're a lot of fun to build together, right? You're with the kids and you're building something, you're constructing something. But the reality is that they're not going to last. The weather and the tide will wash them away. Or as David Gibson, who's written a book, called Living Life Backwards says, this teacher of Ecclesiastes is telling us to think about life from the perspective of death to stand by the graveside and learn how to live. To stand by the graveside and learn how to live. So the wisdom of Ecclesiastes chapter 11 is the teacher trying to tell us something. It's about where we stand, about our perspective on life, our understanding of what is here and what we devote our lives to but will not be here forever. And this isn't some sort of hopeless commentary in life that we just can't do anything, but it's a reminder that we can't really fully control life. 
But there are uncertainties, but the uncertainties of life are meant to have a shaping influence because of our faith on what we do know and can be certain of in life. Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first, we would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work. So I'm gonna consider three things that we don't know, and then three things that we can know through a wise, biblically-based life. First, we don't know how to predict the future. Contrary to what the AccuWeather app says or whatever forecaster you talk to, we can't predict life. And yet, the opposite is true in our actions. We actually deceive ourselves as we make plans. Some of you probably, in fact, I know there is one couple in here who has a 12 o'clock tea time, which is why they're at the 930 service. And I won't call them out specifically, but Gail Ireland, I hope you beat Dick in golf this afternoon. <laughs> right, but, but, but seriously, we make plans. I'm making plans. My wife's making plans. You're making plans. We're going to see the grandkids. We have calendars. We've got vacation calendars, work calendars, kid calendars. It, it not, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but we don't really know if the things we have planned will actually come to pass. In fact, when something doesn't according, according to our plan, we can sometimes become more frustrated than relaxed and agreeable. So if you read in your NIV translation, the end of verse 2 in chapter 11 states, you do not know what disasters may come upon the land. So in your effort of deciding in the midst of Havel, of life's fleetingness, but it's here, whether you're going to check it out, just mail it in and check out, whether you're going to be fulfilled and tranquil and content with a handful, or whether you're going to try and grasp and get what everybody else has. Because after all, we've always said the grass is always greener where? On the other side. It's astroturf. That's why. <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen. So the first is we can't predict the future. The second is we do not know how to do what God alone can do. We do not know how to do what God alone can do. Verse 5 reminds us this. You do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in the mother's womb. So you can't understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Consider the imagery of the wind, right? We build wind farms like crazy. The joke in the panhandle of Texas was everybody now knows why it's so windy between Abilene and Amarillo all the way to New Mexico. It's because they put all these big oscillating fans up on the plains of Texas, <laughs> right? We're trying to capture the wind as it blows. But the reality is the wind is a mystery to us. We can sort of predict it. We sort of know where it's coming from, but we don't form it. You see, God makes the wind. We are the ones who manage and care for what has been made. We don't create it. And so we do not know how to do that which only God alone can do. And thirdly, we do not know how to guarantee success and avoid failure. 
We like to think we do. But we do not know how to guarantee success or avoid failure. I mean, it's right here in the text. You do not know which will succeed, verse 6, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. I don't know of anyone who actually aims at failure. Even a sports team, despite our armchair analysis, uh, that doesn't draft or trade the right person isn't actually looking at failure. Maybe you think they're not wanting to win on the field, and that may be an objective so that they make more money, but they're not really looking to fail. They're looking to be profitable. But we don't know how to guarantee success or how to avoid failure. And I want you to hold on to that thought because there are three things at least that that we do know, that are born from a place of wise living, and they're found in the exact same verses. So first, wise living, living that is an open-handed life filled with tranquility and a sense of contentment. Wise living is sitting loose to life and its possessions. Now, that's a weird phrase, isn't it? Sitting loose to life and its possessions. I got that from the guy named Douglas Wilson. Listen to what he says. The future is uncertain, so give your dessert away. This guy had me at dessert, right? (laughs) Insert your word. Give your cheesecake away. Give your bluebell away. I don't give my donuts away, but I'm getting close. I'm working on it, right? We're Methodists. We're moving on to perfection. I'm just not there yet. The future is uncertain, so give your dessert away. Give it away. Sit loose to life by giving your life away. Sit loose to your possessions by giving them away. Don't you love that imagery? Sit loose to life and give your life away. Is this not what Christ did? Is it? Think about it. He sat loose to life and he gave it all away for you and for me. Or as the RSV translates it, which is why I read that way, cast your bread upon the waters. Give a portion, seven to eight. In other words, this imagery is casting and giving her open-handed gestures. In fact, there is even a rabbit trail of numerology that we could explore in the theology here, which is seven is a numerical equivalent to a sense of perfectness or perfectedness, right? On the seventh day, God rested. And so in some suggested commentaries, this is an imagery that you give fully and then go beyond. Or as we say, some people say, which I've never understood. I had a coach who said this once, but he was from Louisiana State University and played nose guard and was a defensive uh, player, so we always questioned their cognitive abilities after a few hits. I had to run so many up-downs this day, but I had about all I could have with his colloquialism. He says, you guys better go out and give their 110% today. I said, how do you do that, coach? I only got 100%. You can't give 110%, but you can give 100%. That's what the writer's saying. So first... Wise living is sitting loose to life in its possessions. Secondly, wise living means that neither success nor failure is ultimate. As one sort of West Texas colloquial comment was made to me several years ago, be careful, son. When things are going good, they're probably not as good as you think they are. And when things are going bad, they're probably not as bad as you think they are. 
Right? So in verse 6, sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which will succeed. Did you catch that? Don't let your hands be idle. In other words, it's a repetitive sense of what we picked up from the Quelloweth in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Look, don't be a fool. Don't mail it in. Don't let your hands just fold up. Don't just say, I'm going to close up my yacht. I ain't doing nothing. Right? Don't let your hands be idle. You don't know which will succeed, this or that, whether both will do equally well. You see, there are better things in life than to just to succeed personally. There are more important things to do than to, to make it in the world. And there are worse things than to fail at something. The question is, are you failing forward in learning as you go? This balance in life is a specific action that is intended about the sowing what our intended goal is. It's about growing. And verses 3 and 4 illustrate that there is both a predictability in life and a randomness in life. And they're equally true. Sometimes there isn't a perfect time for everything, but there is a time for everything. Verse 3, right? What's so clear? If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. Duh, we know that in Houston, don't we? Whether a tree falls to the south or the north in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Well, that's just really wisdom, isn't it? This guy's the best God's got to write the wisdom. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. It's about if you get distracted and go to an extreme in focus, then that's where life becomes unbalanced. How are you living life? With open-handedness? How's your sandcastle metaphorically in life doing? And third, wise living is its own reward. Wise living is its own reward. I love the way that David Gibson puts it in his book, Living Life Backward. He suggests that the teacher here is saying to us, slow down, have some friends around you. Enjoy a good meal together. Savor conversations. Enjoy what you are doing. Your friendships aren't there to bolster your confidence or security or self-image so that you can now go on and do something with your life. Read this screen with me, friends. We all need to hear it. Don't use people like that. Your friendships are themselves the gift. Your friendships themselves are the gift, not what you acquire. Or to put it as bluntly as I know how, I have never done a funeral where there has been a U-Haul or a moving company directly behind the hearse that carries the coffin because you can't take it with you. But how, friends? How, how do we make these changes? I want to tell you how I arrived at closing this sermon as a way of encouraging you to be open in the conversations. I didn't have a good close. And Sean and I were actually talking about this sermon last night, and she said, oh, listen to the... And she didn't know. We were just in a casual conversation. I didn't say, hey, honey, can we have a conversation so that you can help me finish my sermon? It's like the joke about the pastor who's sitting around watching the kids and the wife says, what are you doing? He says, I don't know, but in a minute I'm going to find a scripture to go with something funny the kids are doing so I can have a sermon Sunday. <laughs> we were just generally talking about things. 
And she offered something that she saw on Instagram. And in full disclosure, I actually had to say, okay, I haven't been on Instagram so long. I don't know how to use my app in Instagram. So she had to take my phone and open it up and show me what she sent to me on Instagram. This is just to encourage those of you who may be wondering, how much help does a preacher really need? Right? It's a quote from Mel Robbins, not someone who I did some digging I would probably read a lot of, but you need to avail yourselves to all types of writing and literature so that your wisdom can help you discern and sift through what is good and biblical and helpful. Don't get in an echo chamber, but be wise. And so this is how I think that conversation ends this sermon. It is this way. Mel Robbins says, if you want to change your life, just start acting like the person you want to become. Science calls this behavioral activation therapy. The more you act like the person you want to become, even if you don't feel like that person yet, the quicker you become that person. Describe the kind of person you want to become and choose what actions you can take today to start becoming that person. Or as the Apostle Paul says in chapter 2 of Philippians, have in mind the mind of Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but was obedient even to the point of the death upon the cross. That the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, isn't, isn't that, I mean, Robin's words are an echo of what's happening in Scripture. Because reality is, Ecclesiastes shouldn't be a big surprise to us. We're a messed up people in a messed up world and we're not done yet. It should be a word of hope. Some things are as clear as the wind that is blowing and the rain that is coming and then puff tragedy happens and we try to make sense of life. And if we work too hard at trying to make sense of life, we're going to be in this rabbit hole that will never bring us a sense of contentment. And if we go down the other way and say, no, I'm not going to think about life at all. I'm just going to fold it up and mail it in. Or maybe I'm just going to grab all that I can because I'm only here for a certain amount of time and I know that I've just get the right balance in my 401k. If I just drive the right car, if I just had the right job, I'll finally be happy. And we live at the altar of the idolatry of a destination to which we never arrive. However, if we surrender our lives fully to this wounded healer of Galilee, Christ, who gave his life for all, who says in Matthew chapter 11 is recorded, come to me, all who are burdened, who are weary, and I will give you rest. So friends, today we find ourselves now back at the metaphorical beach casting our bread upon the water in the midst of building our sandcastles called life gazing at the clouds and pondering the mystery of life reflecting on our failures and our dreams and maybe the most important thing today isn't the kind of sandcastle we are going to build but what are we going to build with our lives and how are we going to build individually and together the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is that whatever we build with our lives, we build best 
with an open hand to God. Let's pray together. God, we're grateful for um, the incredible wisdom of the writer of Ecclesiastes as you planted uh, these ideas that deconstruct all of our false notions in this world, that we're in control, that if we just work hard enough, we can get things done the way we want, that if we just put enough things in our calendar, we can control everything and there'll be no surprises and no heartache. God, help us live more into the mystery of life, but grounded in what we do know, and that is that you are a God who is with us, that Emmanuel, God with us, changes everything. It helps us not to fold our arms, to give up and collapse our yod and say, I'm I'm giving up on life. Or to live the other extreme where we try to grab all that we have, but to find that place where we open our hand and open our heart to you. God, I pray that any words that have been helpful in a journey that someone is walking through, that you would nurture that in their hearts and plant in them a desire to dig deeper into your word. God, if anything I've said today in trying to unpack the mystery of life has been hurtful or seems to diminish the pain that someone is going through, I ask for that forgiveness now. And I ask that that would be a window into conversation. And I ask that it would be an opportunity to touch that pain and begin to live through it and beyond it. But of all, God, I give you thanks for Jesus Christ the one who loves us all to death, literally upon the cross, that we might be loved to life eternal in heaven. This we pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people did say, Amen.